0: Children who haven't already left for Children's Church, you can be dismissed now. It's good morning. It's great to be with you and glad to have you and as a part of our continuing study of the gospel of Luke. And this morning, we're looking at two episodes or one episode and a couple of comments by Jesus. And it's the call of Levi as well as the new wineskins. So follow along in your uh, bulletin as I read. This is Luke chapter 5, our gospel reading. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. The days will come, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says, the old is good. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the mid-90s, the record industry was riding high. They'd enjoyed over a decade of phenomenal profits built on the back of selling compact discs. CDs were basically a money-printing machine and they were all very very wealthy. Then Napster came along and all of a sudden people forgot the need or no longer needed the physical media that the, the music was contained on. Now of course it was shut down because it was illegal. People were trading music rather than buying it but the record industry didn't recognize that the landscape had changed and it never recovered. They refused to adapt to the new world and re- resisted even legal means of buying music digitally. There's a great book I read a few years ago. It's a great business book or any, for any organization that refuses to adapt to a new landscape, a new environment. It was called The Appetite for Self-Destruction, of course, kind of gone, going off the Guns N' Roses song, but that the record industry had an appetite for self-destruction. And it documents with excruciating hindsight how the record labels were so accustomed to these high profit margins that they refused to look at any other new revenue streams. They opposed any new revenue models. The old wineskins for them had held really good wine for about 40 years, and they had no taste for what was new. No recognition that things had changed, a refusal to look at new streams. The new wine challenged everything that they held dear. And they continued to say, even to this day, the old is better. The old is better. We're not going to adopt to the new. We're going to look at how Jesus challenges the old ways of thinking, how Jesus brings new wine. And the question for us is, will we adapt? Will we adopt this new way that Jesus is calling people into the presence of God? we're going to look at just two things simply. The righteousness of Jesus. How does he describe and define righteousness? And then finally, the revolution of Jesus, the revolution of the new wineskins. Let's pray before we look at this. Father, there's much to delight in in this passage. There's also much to wrestle with. There's much in this passage that is comforting and yet you're pushing against all of our presuppositions, all of our deeply held prejudices, all of the ways that we have thought about ourselves and defined ourselves and defined other people. Father, however this lands in our laps this morning, whatever presuppositions, expectations that we bring to this text, Father, it's no accident that we're here. It's no accident that you have brought each of us to this place to hear your gospel, and I pray that you would meet us where we are, meet our questions, meet our doubts, meet our prejudices, and would you revolutionize them with the gospel? Would you let us be open to the new wine of Jesus? Father, sit close to us in our need, in our time of reflecting upon your word, and pray that you would be with us, that you would move us to understand, that you would open our hearts and open our eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the righteousness of Jesus. The Pharisees certainly had an idea of what righteousness was. And as we said a few weeks ago, their idea of righteousness was indeed very biblically based. They were upstanding people. They were pillars in the community, socially very well behaved. They were the people that you would want in your Rolodex. Now, sometimes these Pharisees get a bad rap, right? Call someone a Pharisee and you'll find out what it means, because it's become synonymous with a hypocrite, with someone who is very, very self-righteous and looks down their noses at other people. But even Jesus commends the Pharisees at times. So it's not just that these are bad people, although they constantly, consistently play the foil to Jesus. But not everything about them as people and about their approach was bad or evil. They were very faithful people, very religious people, and they probably didn't set out to create this religious caste system where they're at the top and everyone else is below them. They deeply wanted to honor God, to lift Him up, to demonstrate how truly holy He was. And as such, they're picking up on a very consistent Old Testament theme, that God is pure, that God is entirely holy that God himself is righteous beyond any comprehension that we could possibly have. But Luke wants us to see something that's also askew about their approach to God, about their understanding of what it means to be righteous. In one sense, their idea of righteousness is entirely biblical. It's important to obey what God commands. It's important to respect his law. It's important to understand that he is holy, and no one of their own accord, of their own fitness, can come into his presence. It's very biblical, in one sense, the way they think about righteousness. And yet, on the other hand, it's wholly opposed to the righteousness that Jesus describes. You see, righteousness is really not about you at all. Righteousness is a quality. It's a possession that God himself has, that only God has. It's an aspect of his character that he then shares with those who will receive it, that he grants. It's a status that he has and only he has, and yet he grants it to anyone who will receive it. To show us that righteousness is really about God and his essence and not about your and my behavior, he shows Jesus misbehaving to show us it's not about simply being a good person. He shows Jesus befriending and hanging out with the worst scoundrels and reprobates that community could, that, that community could offer. Now, he gives us two episodes, and then Jesus gives us two illustrations to drive this home. First of, his, first of all is a calling of Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, a tax collector is the worst person that Jesus could think about in this community. They taxed commerce, and how they made money was by overcharging on that commerce. In the Talmud, the Jewish religious book, they were listed next to murderers and thieves. That's how bad people thought of, how badly people thought of tax collectors. They were Aaron boys of Rome and traitors to their own people. And so Levi was a social outcast and could only hang out with those who shared his line of work. In fact, the disciples probably didn't like him either because he probably taxed their commerce. Peter, a fisherman, had to pay his dues overcharging to Levi or people like Levi. And Jesus invites one into his fellowship, into his friendship. He says, I want you to be on the inside. And what does Levi do? He throws a party. He holds a banquet in Jesus' honor. He eats with Jesus and Jesus eats with him. Now, when you invite someone into your home, and you share a meal with them, you're saying something about that relationship. You're saying that this person is not my enemy. They are a friend. Maybe there's some discord in the relationship, but there's enough commonality that you will have them in your home. You're saying something about that person and about that relationship. But in the ancient world, just multiply that a hundredfold. In the ancient world, when you had someone in your home, you were legitimizing that person as a human being, as an equal You were saying that I share spiritual unity with this person. It was legitimating them. It was a huge thing to share a meal with someone in the ancient world. And here's this rabbi, this holy man, this teacher of the law who chooses a robber to have a meal with, to legitimate as a person, to share spiritual unity with. He eats and parties with the tax collectors and the sinners, the worst reprobates in the community. And the Pharisees say, what are you doing, Jesus? And you understand how this would be so sideways as to what they would expect. Jesus, what are you doing? You're a holy man. You're a teacher of the law, and yet you're partying with these robbers and sinners. How can you combine your religious seriousness with this kind of frivolity? How can you have this lack of discretion in the company that you keep? It's clear, then, that Jesus is working with different categories of righteous, of righteousness. What is it about Levi that commends him as righteous rather than the Pharisees? He got up, left everything, and followed him. This is repentance. This is forsaking an old way of life, an old way of thinking, and adopting a new, adopting Jesus' way of life, adopting Jesus' definition of righteous, adopting Jesus' definition of repentance. It says he left everything, and yet only a, a few sentences later, we're in his house, and he's throwing a party. So apparently he still maintains his house, and he has resources to throw this great feast for Jesus. Now, Luke's no dummy. He wants us to see this apparent discrepancy and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? He got up and left everything, and yet he still has his home. He still has money to buy wine, to throw a party and invite people in. We need to ask why. And what Luke is telling us, what we need to see is that repentance doesn't necessarily involve giving away everything, but it always involves giving up Everything. It doesn't always involve giving away everything, but it always, without exception, involves giving up everything. Levi doesn't give away everything, but he gives up his claim upon everything. It's no longer his. His resources now belong to Jesus, and so he throws a party in Jesus' honor. He repents of the self-centered way that he had prosecuted life to that point, the self-centered way that he had gone about acquiring assets, acquiring money, the self-centered way that he had built his own wealth and prosperity on the backs of other people. And he takes on a new center. It's Jesus himself. He goes from being a self-centered person to a Jesus-centered person, and it causes him joy. It causes him to throw a party. He doesn't become a Christian and then say, well, let me look around for anyone who's having fun and put the kibosh on that. I'm going to look for anyone who's smiling and having a party and drinking, and I'm going to squash that immediately. That's my role. We've got to be serious about this thing. No, he throws a party. He buys a lot of wine. He invites over all the bad people in the community, and he invites Jesus and says, let's have a feast. But notice, there's something different about the kind of feast that he throws. It's not this nihilistic way of feasting that says, well, tomorrow we may turn to dust anyway, so let's have a big party and get as much pleasure out of this world as we possibly can because there's really no meaning to be found. It's not that nor is it, I'm going to try and find as much merriment in this world because, just to kind of, as a sensory, you know, diversion, I'm going to try and have as much fun to kind of dull my senses to how bad the rest of my life is. It's not that either. It's not the traditional way, traditional manner of throwing a party. Those are self-centered ways of having a banquet. Levi doesn't throw a party for himself, but for Jesus He's celebrating because Jesus has given him the one thing that he could never acquire, the one thing that his great wealth could never buy. Jesus is giving him acceptance. Jesus is saying, you have been on the margins your whole life. I give you belonging. I invite you into the very presence of God. That's the one thing that Levi could never buy, could never purchase, could never acquire by his own effort. Jesus grants it to him, and so he throws a party. The Pharisees gather around outside with these grim faces, passing judgment. What a waste. What a disgrace. What an offense to God. And Levi, along with all the sinners and Jesus too, with a big smile, recline at the table and have fun, share a laugh, share a glass of wine, and enjoy the gifts of God. Do you see how differently those two conceptions are of righteousness are? Though both can be tied into the Bible in some degree, Jesus is saying that the way that the Pharisees go about life and obedience is drastically different than the way I do. This, friends, reclining at the table with sinners and reprobates is righteousness. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees object to this kind of partying, this kind of frivolity, this kind of looseness with obedience. And Jesus Jesus performs a judo move on them by quoting one of their own books back to them, the Makilta. The healthy don't need a doctor, it's the sick. Now, it's interesting He doesn't reject their distinction between righteous and sinner. He doesn't say there is no difference. Clearly, there is a distinction. But the thing is, given a choice, Jesus chooses the sinner. It's not that there's no difference, but who does Jesus want to be with? He wants to be with the sinner. He wants to be with the partier. He wants to be with the robbers and the reprobate. That's who Jesus is attracted to. Given the choice, he's going to hang with them. He says, they're my people. God wants to befriend the outsiders, the nobodies, the wrongdoers, the criminals, even his enemies. We get kind of an embodied mission statement by Jesus here as he lives out this initial phase of his ministry. This is what I'm going to be about. He's hanging his shingle out. Here's who I'm going to be. He's putting the about page on his website, right? This is the type of person I'm going to be, and these are who I've come to serve. Now, we can be a bit cynical about mission statements, but with Jesus, we think, well, okay, that sounds great. You're going to go to the paralytics and heal them. You're going to go to the leper colonies and give them joy. You're going to touch them. You're going to go... To the poor. Well, that's great. We would love that. You're going to go to the widow. You're going to take care of all of the displaced people. And we think, that's great, Jesus. Go and do that. But wait a minute. Levi is not any of these people, he's an outcast for a totally different reason. It struck me this week that. Portlanders are generally sympathetic to all of those other people that we just listed. The poor, the widow, the people that line up down at the rescue mission. There's plenty of services for people in that type of need, that type of outcast. And Portlanders are generally sympathetic to those types of people and say, great, it's wonderful if you say that Jesus cares for those types of people. The church should have been saying that much more emphatically for many years. We're very sympathetic to those kinds of outcasts, but we Portlanders would hate Levi. Levi was a tax collector. He collected fees on other people's commerce. If he was operating today, he'd be working in credit default swaps. He'd be a predatory loan originator. He'd be foreclosing on people who were behind on their mortgages. You see, he's not like the men and women that are lining up down at the rescue mission, that we see, of course, Jesus would love those people. Of course, they should be brought in. He's going to the high finance bankers and saying, these two are my people because you hate them. And I'm going to show just how strong your prejudice is by going to the very person that you hate. Do You see how relevant this is in our culture He would be a banker, enriching himself on the backs of the working class. And Jesus invites him into the very presence of God. He goes to a party with him. Jesus couldn't be more clear, friends, that, of course, his mission is to the actual poor, the actual downcast, the actual oppressed people, absolutely. That is right at the center of his mission. But what I realized this week, that the real revolutionary thing about Jesus' mission me, message is that he's now, will, not that he's willing to uh, embrace the untouchables, not that he's willing to touch those who you wouldn't touch. It's that he goes to everyone who is your untouchable, that he embraces everyone who you wouldn't think about. What he's really saying is that he's willing to sit down and have a meal with everyone that you despise. Everyone who, for you, is the other person that Jesus couldn't care for, that Jesus couldn't grant grace to, that's who he goes to. Maybe it's those, for you, maybe it's those who love George W. Bush. Maybe it's those who love Obama. Maybe those are the people that you can't imagine God loving. Maybe it's pro-life advocates. Maybe it's pro-choice advocates, depending on where you sit this morning. Maybe it's those who fight for traditional marriage and those who fight for gay marriage. Maybe it's rich people in their big fancy cars. Maybe it's poor people because they don't work hard enough. Whoever it is for you, this morning Jesus says, I embrace them. They are my people, and I will go to them whatever you say, no matter what you say. Jesus cuts through all of our categories and says, I love everyone whom you don't. I accept everyone whom you reject. The Pharisees say, look at all we're doing for you. Look at how we're standing up for what is good and honorable and right, preparing the way for God. And Jesus says, you got to come in just like everybody else. You're as helpless as a paralytic. You're as sinful as a tax collector. You're as dirty as a leper. You got to come in just like everyone else. By reaching out to the opposite person that we'd expect, the person that we'd most like to see excluded, he's saying, you're a sinner as well. You're just as deeply in need as that person that you can't imagine God embracing. As you build your status on the backs of other people by saying, well, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not that person. Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You're not, building wall, you're not building up your righteousness, you're building up walls between you and I. You can't do anything to earn an invitation to his party. The tax collectors and the sinners know that. They understand they're the worst in the community and they can't build their reputation on the backs of anyone else because they're at the bottom. Of course, they are more readily accepting of Jesus' message because he's the one person who says yes to them. He's the one person who embraces them. And guess who he is? God in the flesh. That's who accepts these people. That's who invites them in to the party. A rabbi, a healer, a teacher, a holy man comes and embraces them. He reaches through all of the barriers that have said no to them, and he says yes, and they flock to him. Friends, Levi gets it. He repents. And what does repentance look like? It looks like a party. It looks like a celebration. It looks like a banquet, a feast. That's true repentance. Levi gets it because he knows that the one thing that he could never buy, Jesus grants him perfectly and for all time. And he leaps up and down. He throws a party. He can't contain himself. He understands what true righteousness is, that it's nothing that you could ever attain. It's only given by the grace of God. And the Pharisees' heads are spinning. They say, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus gives us two illustrations, the bridegroom and the banquet and the new wineskins. We'll take these in order and then we'll conclude. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come, you see, when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they'll fast. Now, in the days of the Second Temple Judaism, in the days of the Pharisees, fasting and and praying was done to signify mourning because they lived in exile. They lived under the oppressive presence of Rome. And they were longing for the time when Messiah would come and set things right. And so they were fasting and praying because the bridegroom wasn't present. The Messiah wasn't present. And so they were in a time of mourning. And so, of course, fasting and praying was what they expected. And if they could fast and pray in a a long enough, more focused enough time, hard enough, dedicated enough, then that would, would promote the conditions in which Messiah could come. They could convince God to come back. And Jesus is saying, stop mourning. Stop mourning. The bridegroom is here. The exile is over. I've come to grant you freedom. I've come to grant you full standing with God. The end of the exile is here. It's time to celebrate. There's time coming, he says, when the bridegroom will leave again. And he's not talking about the 2,000 years from his resurrection to now. He's talking about Thursday to Sunday, the time when Jesus is in the grave. The bridegroom is present with his disciples and he goes to the cross and that's time to mourn. That's time to fast and pray because the bridegroom has left the building. The bridegroom is no longer with us. It's time then to fast and pray, but now it's time to celebrate because Jesus is here. Our proper response to Jesus going to the grave, going to the cross, to earn an invitation for you to come to the party is celebration. It's banqueting. It's feasting. It doesn't mean that all of life is pure joy. It doesn't mean that when you become a Christian that life becomes bliss. Of course not. But it gives you a reason in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of trial, in the midst of things of uncomfortable circumstances to not grieve as if there's no hope, but to grieve with hope, to grieve with the joy, knowing that one day all of this will be set to right. One day all mourning will be done away with. In his death, he is beginning to put all of the terrible things to an end and preparing for an eternal everlasting, wonderful feast that we can barely imagine. All of our parties here, though fun, are only hints of what is coming. And you're invited, friends, to the one party that will never end and the one party that truly matters. And Then finally, garments and new wineskins. He tells them a parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch the old one, if they do, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And the people, and people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins. The new wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And none of you, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for you say, the old is better. The old is better. New wine must go into new skins. Jesus is doing something that at the same time, on one hand, is very consonant with everything that's come before. He says, I am the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And so what Jesus is saying is what the law and prophets pointed to, actually, foundationally, is what I am doing. But in the context in which he comes on the scene, he says, this is new. This is something new to you. This is not something you're accustomed to. But insofar as you've gotten so accustomed to the old ways, you're going to reject me because these old ways are much more predictable and much easier to follow. The instructions are clear. And Jesus says, no, you can't dress people up to make them admissible to the kingdom. Those people I'm partying with are now in, and you're out. No one who drinks the old wine wants the new. We want the old wine if we've drank it. We want to be told what to do we want to know where the boundaries are we want to know how you get in and how you stay in tell me how to follow the instructions we want performance reviews rather than promises of god we want metrics of behavior rather than living in the tension of does god have my back does he really love me even in the midst of this very sinful episode we want predictability it's a prison but at least we know where the walls are. It's a prison, but at least it's comfortable because we can reach around and feel, okay, there's the borders, there's the top, there's the bottom, I know where I fit in, I know how I'm doing. I'm living in a prison, but I'm okay with that because it's predictable. But you see, this destroys both the old and the new. For example, take the two disciplines that the Pharisees mentioned, prayer. Prayer is meant to be a gift to humanity, to connect us with God. But when you pray because you feel guilty, if you don't, you're living in a prison and you have put a yoke around your neck. You've destroyed what prayer really means and what it's really for. Fasting is meant to demonstrate our, our dependence upon God and grant awareness of how he is underneath all of life, that he upholds all of life. But when it's done to negotiate a better response to God, we've missed the point and we've tied a millstone around our neck. You see, it's predictable. If I do this, then God will do that, but it's not true. That's how we would like to live. We want to live by the old way, not the new way, where Jesus is the one who pays for all of your sins once and for all, no matter what. These things, prayer, fasting, all these spiritual disciplines are gifts for you. They must be part of a celebration rather than duties that you keep to keep God in debt to you. The ones that do these disciplines with grace, with a smile, are those people that understand that if they don't do them, God will love them anyway. Those are the people that use the spiritual disciplines as a celebration rather than a duty to fulfill to get leverage over God. You can't do anything to get in. You can't do anything to stay in. You've been saved to enjoy God, not saved to perform. So throw a party. Celebrate. Leap for joy. Consider what Jesus has done, and then throw a party. Have fun. Enjoy the disciplines that he's given you to enjoy him, not as a duty to get leverage over him. Friends, throw a party. Smile enjoy life. If you're in Christ, all of your debt has been paid, and you can come to this table as a feast, as a celebration. Let's prepare to do that now. Father, we thank you for these words, comforting but challenging. Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we have used examples that are very modern, that are very uh, picked from the headlines, Lord, would you help us, if those are not our issues, to find others that, you, that we can relate this understanding of the gospel to, that we can see what righteousness truly is. I pray that we, as we come to the table, as we confess our faith together, that, Father, you would step into our hearts and help us to see all of the ways that we have built walls to separate ourselves from you, all the while calling them spiritual disciplines, all the while thinking of them as the avenues by which we approach you. Father, help us to repent. Help us to leave this building with a smile on our faces, with joy to extend your grace to other people. We pray in Jesus' name.